Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This show was pre-recorded on March 16th, so we are not taking listener calls or questions, but we are interested in your comments. You can contact us at news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is the third program in our series this year featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today, is that for real? Conspiracy theories in American politics. We'll talk about the political and social conditions that give rise to conspiracy movements, why are people drawn to these ideas? What are the conditions in civil society that feed into these trends? How have these moments come up in our history before? How have we gotten past it before? And can democracy really function when these beliefs are widespread? This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. First, we have Jamie McGowan. Jamie is the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and the James Russell Wiggins Chair in Government and Polity at College of the Atlantic. Jamie teaches a course in conspiracy theory that he's been doing for several years before it became, you know, the thing. Um, welcome, Jamie. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And then also joining us, we're very pleased, is Joanne Miller. Joanne is Associate Professor of Political Science and International Relations and Director of Graduate Studies at the University of Delaware. Joanne's research centers on political psychology, political propaganda, misinformation, and conspiracy theories. We're just so pleased you could join us, Joanne. Great. Thanks for having me. So this is the third in what we hope will be a four-part series on the breakdown in civility and fact-based deliberation that has shaken our faith in democracy, the rule of law, our fellow citizens over the last several months and years. On our January show, which you can hear from the archive at weru.org, we talked with experts about deliberative democracy, engaging with each other to build shared understanding, even when differences are very real. In February, we explored how the internet is shaping our civic life and why this might be a problem for the future of Western style constitutional democracies. Today, we want to explore the strange moment of collective belief in the unbelievable that is dividing our polity, our families, and our communities. So let me put it to you first, Joanne. When we talk about conspiracy theories in civic life, what are we really talking about? Is there a definition? So from a social science perspective, we tend to define conspiracy theories. So first, we can break up these two words, right? A conspiracy is a plot, secret plot between two or more people to do something, typically that favors them and disfavors others. Um, and then so a conspiracy theory would be any explanation of an event that puts at its center a conspiracy as, as the cause. Um, and so whether or not, and we can talk about ones that have been true or to the extent that they do become true, but whether or not it, it ultimately is true or not, it's a conspiracy theory in that moment um, because there haven't been uh, because it, the, the, the conspiracy theory sort of counters either uh, existing knowledge or expert ex explanations of the event currently. So are the, this, the psychological definitions of these comp conspiracy theory beliefs, are they the same as the political science historical definitions pretty much? Yes, 
Yes. Okay. And, and it has to do, I mean, I hear what you, I hear you saying is there are conspiracies, right? Okay. So there's the conspiracy and then there's the conspiracy theory, Jamie, you know, I think maybe mostly we're talking about where people make up these stories about conspiracies that may or may not exist. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think going, going to the point Joanne made, I, for me, one of the first things that is not a good way to define what constitutes a conspiracy theory is, oh, that's false. Therefore, that's a conspiracy theory, right? Like, oh, there's the truth and then there's conspiracy theories. In reality, if we're going to ask, you know, when academics or others from all kinds of disciplines try to study this thing, surprisingly, it's not that easy to actually pin down what the thing is. And then often, I would say, and I, I tell my students, it's better to think of it more like a genre than it is a, de a clear definition, right? Like, like we think of a science fiction movie or a, a, is Die Hard a Christmas movie or something like that. Um, this is very similar. We, there are hallmarks, things that you often find with conspiracy narratives, conspiracy explanations, but sometimes it can get a little interesting, right? Like, you know, well, Watergate, was that a conspiracy theory, for instance, or um, was the U.S view of, you know, uh, Soviet, Soviet infiltration, a conspiracy theory. And so, um, yeah, it's a little murky at the edges, I think. I think that's, I, I would agree with Joanne in, in a lot of ways about that. The big lie right now, is that a conspiracy theory? Um, you know, the prevalent view that the election was stolen or hacked. Um, you know, name some other ones that are running around right now. There's some to do with COVID vaccines, Joanne. There's some to do with QAnon. Name some other ones. Sure. So there, there are a variety around COVID and COVID vaccines, uh, even going to the uh, extent of saying that COVID itself is a hoax. And the whole idea of COVID is a secret plot by various types of people. Um, so um, QAnon is a vast sort of interweb of quite a number of, of things, but at its heart is the notion of a deep state. Um, lots of government conspiracy theories sort of have at their heart a secret group of people who are really running the government. Um, so um, whether they are bureaucrats or foreign entities that are really running the government in secret, um, there are conspiracy theories surrounding, you know, ones that your listeners will know of around the moon landing being faked and, and the secret plots around um, sort of hiding that or that former President Barack Obama wasn't born in the United States, um, for, for example. So or they the kind of run the gamut. Or I was going to say the deep state, um, the CIA assassinated JFK. You know, that's a deep state theory, too. Name some from our past, some well-known ones from our past, Jamie. Oh, Lord. I mean, it, there's so many of them out there. And I think the, the question is more about often which ones rise up and in, in, in kind of bubble up to the mainstream. We often talk about the mainstreaming of conspiracy theories, conspiracy explanations, because they're, you know, they're always present in a lot of places, whether or not it's fluoride in the water or chemtrails or the fact that the Masons are taking over. I mean, we actually had an anti-Masonic party here in the United States in the early 19th century uh, and a later wave of it as well. 
well. You know, I spent a lot of time in the 19th century. That's kind of where a lot, not actually spent time there. That's where some of my work is. And, um, you know, when you think about some of the ways that uh, particularly anti-Catholic bias or uh, when people used to think that the Pope was out to do things and that at one point Catholic schools were considered to be a vehicle of a secret plot by the papacy to, to do X, Y, and Z. And so, you know, there are a lot of different ones and, and assassinations, another classic one. You bring up, you know, um, Kennedy, but it's not the first time we've had various kind of conspiracy theories emerge around assassinations or often other tragic events. So, yeah, it's 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 interesting. You could say that they're they're always out there. People are in varying degrees appropriating them and immersing themselves in them. Um, but there are moments in time when they kind of rise up to the, and I guess to the mainstream, meaning that they get more readily accepted in the halls of Congress, for instance, as, mm-hmm. as we have seen more recently. So, so what are the is the social, cultural, civic conditions that allow some of these to really take that kind of root, Joanne, and turn into a mass thing? I mean, I know there were people who thought George Bush brought down the Twin Towers, and probably a few of them thought that, but it never really bubbled up the way some of this stuff does now. Go ahead. So I'm not sure if we know that. So I'll start there. Um, certainly with social media, we see more. We, we, and so we think that it's bubbled up more. Um, but if you look at the public, the, the surveys, public polls out there, um, we see sort of about, I mean, it varies from conspiracy theory to conspiracy theory, um, but about 20% of the American po- population believes some sort of conspiracy theory. We can list a bunch of them and see which ones. And I don't think that's probably changed over time. Um, so I'm not sure. So I I kind of push back a little bit on statements surrounding that we're in now a conspiracy moment, right? Um, because I because I'm not sure. I because I because I, I don't think that there's there's evidence because we don't have good evidence going back 2034 or even way before that. Um, but if we talk about, I'll briefly mention, and we can dig into this some more, some of the sort of causes of conspiracy thinking. Some of them are just at the individual level. Um, so, um, and so conditions can exacerbate these things. So, for example, when people feeling are feeling uncertain about their worlds or feeling powerless or feeling like they lack of control, one of the things that we all do, it's a natural thing that we all do, is try to explain our worlds. And when we're feeling particularly uncertain, we're particularly trying to seek out explanations because those explanations help us operate better in our worlds. And when we're seeking out explanations because we really, really want to find one, we'll find one. Sometimes it will be a conspiracy theory. Um, but that explanation can help us sort of regain some, some control or at least feel like we're regaining Um, some control. And so from that perspective, certain contexts, political contexts, social, cultural contexts that give rise to an increase in uncertainty can certainly activate those types of natural, ordinary sort of motivations to understand that we all, that we all have. And so right now we could say COVID is a perfect storm of uncertainty. Um, And there are lots, there's lots more that we can dig in there, but. Well, you know, after the 2016 election, a lot was written about the politics of resentment and the dislocation that happened around China's entry to the World Trade Organization and worsening um, wealth and income inequality. I mean, all these things have been very 
dislocating at the beginning of the 21st century. Jamie, are these kinds of dislocations common to conspiracy? I mean, I'm going to try not to use conspiracy moments because Joanne says maybe they aren't those, but to episodes in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think, and to Joanne's point, I think that you're absolutely right that one of the challenges when we ask this question about how prevalent belief in a conspiracy theory is, first of all, begins with the problem of what do you mean by belief, right? Because I think one of the interesting things when we talk about conspiracy theories is there are a lot of folks who maybe kind of trade in them or immerse themselves in them, consume them uh, as narratives, but aren't, you know, if we said, is belief like a light switch, you either are or not a believer. And sometimes I know with social science work that is done and and, I, and friends and colleagues of mine who've done it, it's very hard because you, you want to be able to classify someone like you're a believer or not. And it's not, it's more of an ecosystem of that. And, and so it is kind of hard to judge if we're in a conspiracy moment, because even the mainstreaming, like, for instance, if you hear a conspiracy theory espoused in the House of Congress or the, in the halls of Congress or even by the president, that doesn't necessarily indicate the prevalence of what we might call belief. But I do think that there's something about that dislocation component. And that dislocation doesn't have to be a material kind of dislocation predicated on, like, I lost my job or something we might consider to be, you know, verifiable things in the world. It could also be the constellation of ways in which you understand your own political alignment in society at a particular moment. And there are historians and philosophers and others, you know, there are social theorists who call this cognitive mapping, other people who point out that, you know, Gordon Wood wrote an interesting essay many, many years ago about the 18th century, basically, that in the 1700s, there was a lot of dislocation of people's worldviews and perspectives that were going on. Also, similarly, people wrote about the disintegration of the basically of a party system at the, in the years before the Civil War in the United States, creating kind of realignments where people tried to understand their own position politically vis-a-vis -vis these parties they had always associated with. That kind of dislocation, some have argued, and I think there's a convincing argument, though it's hard to empirically verify it, that that kind of dislocation creates fertile ground for conspiracies to emerge because they provide, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, very clean and understandable, digestible, condensed ways to explain the chaos around you, like an anchor. You know, I think um, uh, Timothy Melly once called that agency panic. Like we freak out about the fact that we're trying to like put agency back in our world. So that's a long answer to your short question. But yeah, dislocation well, is definitely part of that. And you're making you're making me think of a uh, something that I read a couple of weeks ago about how multiracial democracy in America is really only 50, 50 some years old and that um, the embracing of multiracial democracy may be one of those dislocating factors. What do you think, Joanne? I think that's probably true. I mean, I think that, I mean, there are different types of dislocations as Jamie, Jamie um, was mentioning, war is dislocating. And so you had lots of conspiracy theories around war, um, social cultural changes, uh, that you know may tear down or threaten a social cultural hierarchy or racial hierarchy, um, for for example. Um, but there are also cyclical ones as well. Um, when we talk about political conspiracy theories and we talk about the big lie um, and, and election conspiracy theories, um, in a lot of sense, conspiracy theories um, politically, conspiracy theories are for losers. Um, when you're on the losing side of politics, that's very dislocating. Um, and so we see 
that it may not be an increase in the number of people, um, but we're changing who, who, Democrats on the one hand, Republicans on the other hand, depending on who's winning or losing. Um, I will say, and we can talk about this more, that, that as much as I push back on this notion that we're in a conspiracy theory moment right now and that more people are believing than ever have before, um, we are in kind of a different, not kind of, we are in a different world over the past number of years with uh, former President Trump in that we have never to that extent had an elected a president trafficking conspiracy theories from a strategic, for a strategic political way. Um, that that he did. So that is fundamentally different. Whether that means that more people believe is a different, right. different story. Right, right. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum this afternoon on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today, is that for real? Conspiracy theories in American politics. Our guests this afternoon are Jamie McGowan, the Russell, no, no, James Russell Wiggins Chair in Government and Polity at the College of the Atlantic, and Joanne Miller, Associate Professor of Political Science and International Relations and Director of Graduate Studies at the University of Delaware. Um, you know, and so just to what you were saying, I mean, I know a lot of people thought that the John Kerry election of 2004 was stolen, right? And, um, you know, now there's this, and, you know, the fact that people thought that doesn't necessarily mean it was or was not true, but, you know, when you can't understand why you lost it. Um, so, Jamie, can, you know, wh when people start believing this, um, the, these theories, whether they have a kernel of truth or not, what has that foretold about democracy, civil discourse, and um, a shared set of common beliefs that allows us to self-govern? I, th I think it's a real challenge for civic deliberation when um, there's a belief that almost challenges the good faith of your interlocutor, the person you're actually having a conversation with. So, you know, we can talk about, and I think there's often a lot of emphasis on kind of do conspiracy theories promote violence, right? Actually, I think it, that's fine to talk about. And, and there's some interesting questions there. And I'm not certain that, you know, I would be, I think, I'm not certain we have clear answers about that, but I, that often can include the fact that in general, if you just look across the whole wide degree of, of democratic participation, um, when you assume that the person you're interacting with is a sheeple or that they, oh, you just believe that because someone told you that, or you're literally inhabiting a different world, right? I mean, we can talk about the dynamics of, you know, how you argue with someone, you know, who believes in a particular conspiracy theory. But one of the old adages of the self-sealing nature of these is evidence that proves the conspiracy theory proves the conspiracy and evidence that disproves the conspiracy theory was planted specifically to disprove the conspiracy theory, therefore proving the conspiracy theory. <laughs> and at that point, like, how do you have a debate of, with, with that? And, and I think that can be the challenge right there. When we talk about that, we can often, uh, you know, kind of equate it with polarization. It's not exactly the same thing, but I think to Joanne's earlier point, it can magnify that. It can, it can be like gasoline uh, on an existing, you know, politically polarized society. And so, I do think that's the, the the when we talk about the consequences of widespread belief in political conspiracies, uh, it can definitely make it harder to engage uh, for people to talk to each other. Um, uh, yeah. 
And do you think that that was the strategic intent that caused um, people to use this as a tool for political gain, Jamie? Well, I mean, so I'm, it's, it's hard for me to look inside someone's actual head and say, why are you doing this, right? Um, but but there is a strategic value to, I mean, let's be very clear, right? I mean, it, I, I go back all the way to, um, you know, Kenneth Burke many, many years ago wrote about Hitler's Mein Kampf. And there's this particular moment when, you know, Burke is talking about this passage about the idea that, you know, if you're a nation or you're a group of people and you have six or seven different enemies who all dislike you for different reasons, you might have to think you've done something wrong. But if they all dislike you because they're part of a plot, then you're the hero now, right? And you can mobilize people together. So just like in, you know, when we talk about scapegoating theory, conspiracy theory can perform a scapegoating role that can explain a series of very complex situations by really crystallizing them down into, you know, good and evil right and wrong and and you're just out to get me type of thing so whether or not people have always deployed them for those reasons intentionally is another question but it certainly can can be used in that manner are there I, you mentioned um, Nazi Germany are there examples in our own American history where this has happened before deployment of these um, theories for strategic intent or is this sort of a first? in U.S. democracy. It's, go ahead. I'll let Joanne ask. <laughs> I mean, beyond the current moment, uh, uh, I mean, you know, you could argue that the American Revolution was founded on or stoked by conspiracy theories about what the British government was going to use the colonists for and the government, you know, so we can we can go back to our, our in a sense, founding uh, or you know, that uh, that there are conspiracy theories that were exaggerations um, that were deployed strategically to get colonists behind um, the revolution. Um, so with that, so you know, we can, we can go back there. So I think, uh, yes, I mean, you know, Red Scare communists. I mean, there were certainly, you know, in the in the fifties and sixties, uh, we could talk about. Um, that is a moment in time um, as well. Um, I want to come back to two points that, that Jamie made. One on the scapegoating side of this. And, um, you know, as a political psychologist, I'm interested in both the political, both reasons for and effects of, but then also the psychological ones. And certainly from a psychological standpoint, as an individual, say, for example, who's on the losing side of politics, uh, explaining a way that law says, we lost because the other side cheated, not that my side or our side has bad ideas, is both a safe face-saving mechanism and also a scapegoating mechanism. Um, but what it does then, um, and then when elected officials deploy conspiracy theories in the same way, and I, I can't get into former President Trump's head, uh, but I can speculate a little bit that for him, there's a lot of face saving um, going on here, um, wanting to say even in 2016 that, the, that he won the popular vote. And that seemed to be an obsession of his throughout um, his presidency. Um, but when elected officials start to deploy conspiracy theories for whatever reason, um, the other thing that it does is it constrains governing um, and it constrains the ability for elected officials to compromise with one another. Um, so what we just had on January 6th 
and the many the pronouncements from elected officials about the stolen election makes it very difficult for um, elected officials on both sides now to compromise uh, with one another. Um, how can I compromise with someone who I've just said is a lying, cheating? Right. Insert expletive here. <laughs> right, right. Um, and vice versa. How can I, you know, as a, you know, on, the, on the other side of the aisle, how can I compromise with somebody who just potentially in my mind might have, you know, you know stoked an insurrection yep. um, and threatened my life and the lives of my colleagues? Um, so I think Jamie's right that we often talk about conspiracy theories. The question I often get asked is, do they cause violence? Right? Do people believe conspiracy theories? Are they more likely to engage in violence? I think that's missing the, 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 the broader question that's even more insidious in a way uh, is the extent to which they constrain and cut off debate, discussion, compromise. And that's problematic in a democracy. When you say that, I think of the pre-Civil War period and think of the incredible divisions and inability to compromise at that time. Were there conspiracy theories running around then, Jamie? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it was just conspiracy theories about abolitionists. The slave power conspiracy is a classic example. And also one that's fascinating because it gets to this question of, well, was there something to that conspiracy theory? Like, so there's actually, um, you know, a lot has been written and, and, and talked about with that particular element. In fact, I, I, I would make a case that if you look at Abraham Lincoln's work in, in his House Divided Address, then later in his works in Ohio in 1859, uh, that, that those do have hallmarks of conspiratorial rhetoric in, in a lot of ways. And so, you know, it, it is absolutely the case that that you see that emerge in those years and obviously years of political dislocation and whatnot. And, and the point about compromises is, is a very is a very good point. I mean, I, you know, how do you come up with compromise with the other side when you're in that position? But let's also not overstate human rationality, meaning that you'll hear someone be like, oh, yeah, you know, it's the Illuminati that's behind, blah, blah, blah. And then they're going to go see that Marvel movie because it's just so damn entertaining. All right. So so <laughs> at the end of the day, it's like, you know, I, 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 I want, you know, I want to believe in the conspiracy theory and buy into the con at the same time. Uh, people can do that. It's it's you know, elected officials a little different, but but definitely when we talk about average everyday folks, um, you know, it's, it goes back to that point about what do we mean when we say someone is a believer, right? right. Like a, a whole wide range of, well, I don't fully believe this, but I also don't believe the mainstream explanation of that. Yeah. So I'm, you know. Well, and that that leads to one of the questions I wanted to ask you, you know, how much of this conspiracy thinking is based in the fact that, we do have secrets. Our government does have covert operations. You know, they are doing stuff that we don't know about, um, as WikiLeaks told us. Right, Joanne? The very nature of government is that we don't know everything that's going on. I mean, we, you know, that, so, so whether there's underhanded stuff, illegal or ambiguously legal stuff going on or not, we can't know everything. Right? Um, and so to when we really want to find an answer and we can't directly find the answer uh, because it's not at our disposal to get the information that we need, 
then again, um, it's it's it, our, our our brains are very nimble, right? We're very able um, to um, and also handle contradictions at the same time, as Jamie was saying. Um, and so we'll find one if we need to. Um, but th- the very nature of the world that we live in is that we can't know everything ourselves and find the information. And so there is a foundation of, of needed around trust in experts or trust in elected officials to convey that information um, to us um, and that we believe it to be to be true. When Jamie, there's a long streak of anti-intellectualism in American history. Does that feed into this somehow? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, that's an interesting question, by the way, as a side note, um, whether or not it's there's an anti-intellectual or populist gravity towards conspiracy, conspiratorial explanations. And, you know, I think that there's an argument to be made that one of the appeals of conspiratorial explanations is they often, the, the believer or the person espousing it can claim to have a kind of superior knowledge that somehow transcends the traditional knowledge authorization, right? So it's like, oh, I have an MA and a PhD, and I went to this college, and I hold the gate, I'm the gatekeeper of what is official knowledge, whether or not it's the government or the university or experts in the media. And someone can say, no, they're all just conning you. I've got the real information, right? And and so there is this kind of, um, I wouldn't say it's anti-intellectualism as much as I would say it's like a counter expertise in a kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the, on the other hand, I will also say this, as someone, you know, who has if you go back and look at the long history of the way people have studied conspiracy theories, there's also been a kind of intellectual snobbery about conspiracy theories, like that people somehow are less, I mean, all the way back to Hofstetter's paranoid style, where he's like, why are some people who are normally so rational act so irrational when it comes to these conspiracy theories? And so that is equally the case that people, you know, up until recently, um, it wasn't an area that, you know, a lot of people studied. It was kind of like, oh, those are just, why would you bother studying those fringe kind of, you know, whack jobs, you know, wh- why the tinfoil hat types. Now it's not, that's not as much the case. People are taking this a little bit more seriously of late. So you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERUFM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Jamie McGowan, the James Russell Wiggins Chair in Government and Polity at College of the Atlantic, and Joanne Miller, Associate Professor of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Delaware. Our topic today is that for real conspiracy theories in American politics. This show was pre recorded on March 16th, so we are not taking listener calls or questions this afternoon. We are interested in your comments, though, and you can contact us by email at news at weru.org. Just put democracy form in the subject line. I want to ask you both about the ways in which social media may or may not be amplifying or contributing to what feels like a very intense moment. Why don't you go first, Joanne? Sure. Um, I'll take that as I want to follow up on something Jamie said, because it's your thing. Yep. You know, sort of move into the social media. This this idea that one of the appeals of conspiracy theories is that now I have specialized knowledge um, that, you know, I may not be an educated Ph.D. professor at an ivory tower institution, but I know something and I figured it out. And now I'm going to tell the world maybe through social media, uh, that I have this special knowledge. Um, 
this is in a sense the beauty of Q. Um, if you wanted to construct, if, if you wanted to use psychology to construct a conspiracy narrative movement is maybe too strong of a word for it, but um, the best way to do it is to not be Q who tells everybody what's going on, but drops these little hints, these little breadcrumbs. And those little breadcrumbs are puzzles. And you sit down with that puzzle and you figure out what this number plus this letter plus this three-digit, and then you figured it out. Um, And we all, again, this is not, this is not crazy brain. We like crossword puzzles. We like Sudoku. um, And we like to figure these things out. And so what, what that is in a sense, the perfect way to construct this, not I'm telling you that there's this pedophilia ring at the ba- in the basement of uh, uh, Comet, uh, Ping Pong Comet Pizza in DC, but I'm dropping you this crumbs and you're gonna figure it out for yourself. And because you figured it out for yourself, you're more likely to believe it and want to then proselytize it. Yeah, I see Jamie nodding. Well, and then we'll come to social media. Right, right, right. No, 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 absolutely. I mean, one of the things, you know, when you start taking off all of the reasons why people like what is appealing, what is, you know, enthralling about conspiratorial explanations, one of the ones that I think people look at me strange when I say it is they're more entertaining. Uh, because, I mean, it, it, like in, in, in Hollywood has picked up on this for many, many years, right? The twist at the ending, the can plot behind the plot. I even would go back to, I don't know if most of you remember like the, the television show Lost, right? Like, so Lost was full of this like hypersemiotic, let's go find the codes hidden in the background. They even created fake websites that existed in the re, quote unquote real world that was designed so that like obsessive fans of a television show could like go down the rabbit hole. There is that what some have called the conspiracy rush there, right? Like the, you know, ooh, I'm going to find the next piece. I'm going to find the next piece. Um, and I, I completely agree with with Joanne's point about that, that, that just like, oh, like putting together a puzzle, you're kind of letting the people discover the connection and that that has a, a thrill to it in some respects. Um, and I do think that brings us into the to the social media Internet component. So I'll I'll uh, I'll let I'll pitch it back to Joy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to take it because my answer no. is, it's, it's not an, there's not an easy answer here. So, so certainly we can, we know um, the nature of social media means that I can throw anything against the internet wall and see if it's going to stick or not. So if I'm someone who's entertained by conspiracy theories and, or may believe them, I can throw them out there in a way that I, to a wider audience than I could have pre-social media. And some of those things will stick, some of them won't stick. The things that will stick now versus things that won't stick aren't probably any different from what they were 50, 60, 70, 100 years ago. Our psychology hasn't changed. Um, But the ability to disseminate these is a primary function of social media. Um, Now, you could argue that you can't believe something that hasn't been disseminated. So it, now, I, I said, could. <laughs> there's, there's a, you know, that's a, we'll bracket that off for a second, but um, because certainly you could make things up or, you know, something new could come um, to your mind. Um, but 
to the extent that what social media does is it enables more of these to be out there in the ether, right? That's what we see in this moment as, oh my gosh, we're in this conspiracy right. moment because we see more of them. I'll let Jamie. Jamie well, I, I want Jamie. I want you to talk, but then I also want you to sort of add on to that because you know there's also the opportunity for malicious actors with strategic oh, intent to amplify these things through bots absolutely. and other things. So absolutely, go, and we know that's happening, right? We know we know that's happening. Um, that they're not only amplified by and 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 actually, if you look at some of the Twitter data, which is now harder to collect because some of these. Uh, many of these accounts have now been purged from from Twitter, um, but it's a very small percentage of accounts that are amplifying um, these conspiracy theories or broader sets of misinformation. And so it looks like there's so much of it out there, and there's so many people believing these things. We think believing because they're acting with them. That's not the same as belief. Um, when it really is a much smaller portion of a very small percentage who are even on, say, for example, Twitter in the first place. Right. So, Jamie, put that in historical context for us. I mean, this is the social media moment here. Well, I think part of it is so there's the part about the information. Right. And I and I definitely think jo Joanne's point about the degree to which uh, information can be put out there. Some of the traditional gatekeepers on information dissemination, you know, for instance, do you have a printing press? You know, it's a lot easier. The cost threshold for me to publish something, to put up a website, to, to put something out over Facebook or Twitter is a lot less, and that then brings you into the bot situation. There's also, however, <clears throat> a social component to it. I think we often can overlook that when we just look at the information component. You know, back, and let's just go historically, back before the internet, and I will tell you, like, let's even talk about the 19, early 1990s before the internet had taken hold entirely. We can go back to the 70s and 80s. You would subscribe. These were not, like, necessarily magazines, you know, whether or not it's Paranoia, Steam Subtle Press, Flatland, all these other ones. You wouldn't get these at your typical book store. You might find one occasionally, but you you typically, you know, a magazine that had articles about conspiracy theories in them, you might have to mail away for it. And then you would look in the back and maybe order some other books, but your social, the social network of like-minded people, you might have to go to like a convention and they, they did have them uh, or a similar meeting, which is what the John Birch Society, for instance, would be, right? Like, so you would have local chapters, of the John Birch Society. Now you have what social media does for us is it allows social connectivity, or at least we think social connectivity, we assume it to be so, uh, the appearance of such, in uh, across time and space in ways that are much more efficient and convenient and allow collective kind of groupthink to emerge perhaps in ways that it wouldn't so easily be done, do so. There's one other thing though that I think is really fascinating for me uh, as someone who grew up before the internet and then you know was in college when you got my first email account and things like that, uh, there used to be an old term called hyperlinking. Uh, and most people are familiar with that term maybe today, but that what a lot of people take for granted, which is when you're reading a news article online, you know, you might see a name of somebody and you can click that name and it'll open up a Wikipedia page. That's actually, if one of the hallmarks of conspiracy narratives is connectivity, right? It is hyper-connected. 
then in a way, what online media allows the user to do is to go down rabbit holes much faster. It's not like you're reading an article in a print magazine. You see the Bilderbergers there and you got to go look that up at another thing. Now you can click on it and you just keep going and going and going through a series of those. So there's another way in which the very nature of threaded hyperlinking creates an ideal structure for conspiracization because it's building and building on that freeway of connectivity, that conspiracy rush that ends up with someone being awake till four in the morning on their computer, right? right? <laughs> Just clicking through. And I mean, we've all done that for a lot of different things, right? So um, yeah, I think there's another way that social media works uh, in, in, in propagating. Its so and then you find yourself with like 50 tabs, Right. Open on your computer at the same, and then you forget what you had started reading in the first place. Like, you're so, way past that at this point. So, Joanne, has work been done to figure out whether certain kinds of personalities, certain people, certain traits are more susceptible to this kind of thinking than others? And then leading on, and maybe we can hand it over to Jamie when we get to this point, um, does it does this stuff tend to arise with people who are on one end of the political spectrum or the other? Um, so let's go down that rabbit hole for a second. Go ahead, Joanne. Sure. So let's talk about demographics first. The first question that I'm always asked is, are there demographic characteristics that are related to uh, conspiracy theory beliefs or the prevalence of them? And the answer is not many. So, uh, in general, people with lower formal education tend to be more likely to believe conspiracy theories. And in the U.S. context, certainly, um, th that African-Americans are more likely to believe conspiracy theories. I'll come back to that one in a second. But not really much on gender, not really much on age, not really much on income per se, to the extent that income and education form you know, sort of low SES, um, a little bit there. Social economic status. Socioeconomic status. Thank you. Yes. Um, um, so they combine, but, re, but right. No, no, not really gender, not really age, um, religiosity, um, people who are, are, who identify as more religious tend to be more likely to believe conspiracy theories. Um, but let me just take the education or low socioeconomic status and, and, and race minority status in the US for a second. There's nothing inherently about different racial groups that makes them more or less susceptible or more likely to believe conspiracy theories. Um, if we go back to what I started with about powerlessness, it makes perfect sense that these demographic markers, and I'll speak to the US context because that's the one that I know the best, the demographic markers that are related to powerlessness uh, feelings of lack of control or you know, um, are related to conspiracy thinking. So I so I want to be clear here that when I when I talk about these demographics, we're not talking about some genetic difference between these mm -hmm. groups. Um, we're talking about um, things that are in some sense the powerlessness related to those groups because of the social, political, and institutionalized um, um, sort of hierarchical systems um, in the country. A um, couple of other sort of characteristics, um, and then we can talk about political ones. Uh, one that may seem a little bit circular is that people who are more prone to conspiratorial thinking, so people who tend to, like, just in general think that 
the world is governed by secret people that we'll never understand, or that you know, big events are controlled by secret people that we'll never understand, are more likely to believe any single conspiracy theory. So the way to think about this in my mind is that you've got some people who are more prone to sort of conspiratorial thinking as kind of a predisposition. Um, and then something like 9-11 happens or COVID happens. And now you've ramped up uncertainty and anxiety and, and all of these things that may make it more like, that may activate, you know, the, the characters that the predisposition that may make those people more likely under conditions of uncertainty, for example. And that's what I see with COVID. The people who feel more uncertain about COVID, the ones in particular who are higher in conspiratorial thinking are more likely to believe COVID conspiracy theories. Yep. For example. So, um, so that, there are lots of other personality characteristics, but that can, we'll get, that'll get us too in the weeds, I think. I think these are the, the standard ones. So Jamie, like looking at it over the arc of history, have these things played out more on the political left or the political right, or is it just whatever the moment demands? Boy, that's an interesting question. And one that I think there's a probably would be a variety of different disagreements about. I mean, first of all, whenever you're talking about that, it's hard to cast back too far with our understandings of what constitute left and right. And you know, I think often you'll hear people talk about populist movements and kind of who is the appeal of the particular political movement, who is their main audience or base, and to the extent that that then overlaps with some of the other components that Joanne was talking about, things like social status or educational status. I do think, you know, in different waves, you've definitely seen both right and left um, and, you know, as we politically understand them today, um, and so have different conspiracy theories. And sometimes we don't even think of them as conspiracy theories because all of a sudden they're like, well, that's just true. And I go back to my point, that doesn't make it any less of a conspiracy theory per se. Um, what's, what is very interesting though, is, is that sometimes I think for me, what's fascinating is the way in which actually, uh, conspiracy theories can sometimes bend the curve and bring the far right and the far left together, you know. I, particularly, I was, this may be just because of the period that I was working in, um, kind of beginning to get interested in this topic, during the 1990s, you definitely had, you know, militia, right-wing, patriot, Christian identity people in the same room with, you know, organic, left-leaning, don't trust big government, pharma, anybody else kind of, you know, back to the land types. And, and, and it's interesting if you actually go and like look at like Alex Jones, who in many respects emerged out of that, but, you know, Bill Cooper before him. I mean, you've got, you know, he's he's advertising like organic, natural, you know, he's afraid of cell phone towers. That's a pretty left kind of thing, you know, right? So it's particularly when you get into body and health, that's a little bit more on the left-hand side. That's infused itself into some of the right wing, what we would consider like right-wing conspiracy theories recently, right? And so it, it really, the, for me, what's so fascinating is the space that can be inhabited by both people of the extreme right and the extreme left under this umbrella of suspicion about the New World Order black helicopters, right? I mean, you, you would get both uh, in, that, in that kind of a setting. So, uh, you're, anyway. 
You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Jamie McGowan, James Russell Wiggins Chair in Government and Polity at College of the Atlantic, and Joanne Miller, Associate Professor of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Delaware. This program was pre-recorded on March 16th. No listener calls are being taken. So as we come into the fourth quarter here, I want to spend a few minutes talking about how we recover. Like, did we, like when these things have been very hot and um, frantic and widely bought into in the past, even in Nazi Germany, how do people recover from these divisive moments and resume some sort of shared belief? So go ahead, Joanne, you first. So I'll get to that. Indulge me for one second on yeah, absolutely. political party um, question or ideology question. Uh, from Indulge the social science explanation here for, for a quick bit or, or the social science challenge um, to answering this question. Uh, social scientists, empirical social. So you have Hofstetter writing about the paranoid style and giving a nod to left wing conspiracy theories, but really that book was about right-wing paranoid style. The paranoid style is a right-wing phenomenon and it's and it's and and we get right-wing conspiracy theories um, as, as a result. But if you sort of look at the history of the social science study of conspiracy theories and conspiracy theory beliefs, uh, it's very recent. We're talking 20, 2010, 2011, 12, there's, early, there's some earlier psychological stuff that isn't really political um, uh, that, and so, so you have the Obama presidency and you have the, Obama's a Muslim, Obama wasn't born in the United States. And you have got social scientists starting to say, why do people believe those things? Um, who's more likely to believe them? Well, it's Republicans or conservatives who are more likely to believe that Obama is sneaky and shouldn't have the presidency because he's not eligible to be president and he's, and he's lied about it. And also he's a Muslim um, and probably also a terrorist and all those you know, bad things um, that, that, um, that people on the right would want to believe about a president on, uh, on, on the left. Uh, and so when we start studying these things, sure enough, it is Republicans who are more likely to believe those types of political conspiracy theories because they're on the losing side of politics at that particular moment in time. Right? Uh, during a, a little bit of work that was done around 9-11 conspiracy theories, Democrats are more likely to believe 9-11 conspiracy theories that the Bush administration was involved. Again, they're on the losing side. Um, but Sort of the moment of of that that I would say that the public is starting to become aware of conspiracy theories and the study of it, you know, is a, the Obama presidency and now the Trump and then the Trump presidency, and so it looks like for the past sixteen years, what is the math now? Um, it's been Republicans because even during the Trump presidency, you had a Republican president. Right? Um, and I want to caution against then generalizing that to earlier time periods are going um, forward. And I want to, and I want to make the, 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 the hypo hypothesized here that, that um, Trump is a unique outlier in the short time series that we have in the sense that um, he was a Republican president who kind of governed like he was on the losing side um, in all of his rhetoric, not just conspiratorial. 
Um, I don't find any relationship between ideology and partisanship and conspiracy theory thinking, conspiratorial thinking in general. Um, others do, and this is a debate right now, as Jamie said, in, in, in the literature, but I would caution against using this moment to generalize because we're in a unique moment. So I'll stop there and we can talk a little bit about maybe how to get out of it. <laughs> well, let's lob it over to Jamie. <laughs> right? he, he can take either the how do we get out of it or the patterns in history on political divisions. Go ahead. How we get out of it, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think the first thing to recognize is that, you know, when you start really looking at, you know, the phenomena of belief in conspiracy explanations for an events, you, you realize that it's not so easy to simply dismiss it as all false or all wrong or all irrational. And to try to create a, a clean line where we would say, oh, these are the good ones and these are the bad ones is really tricky. And the, and the last thing you would want to do is, well, not the last thing, but certainly something you would want to avoid is creating a climate in which you stifle skeptical, kind of critical um, uh, interrogation of official expertise, right? I mean, it's totally in keeping. I mean, <clears throat> the point was made, Joy made this point earlier about the, the revolutionary spirit and, and absolutely, right? Like that part of you know, a, a American democracy, how, whatever you think about that is, you know, questioning and in making sure that things are on the table as much as can be while we recognize that certain things have to be kept secret. So it's really hard to say like, well, what we're going to do is we're going to like clamp down on this. We're going to have a project, you know, as some people once suggested, we're going to have cognitive infiltration to try to make sure that we have less conspiracy theory. That's a real, that can create a real dangerous kind of situation. So in a way, when we talk about what do we do to try to get moved past, I think the question is, what is the we, right? Is the we the government? Is the we, you know, a society in general? Is it the education system? I do think there's an interesting argument there. Um, or is it interpersonal? I, I've seen a lot more articles in the past two months, maybe past six months, that look like the articles that people used to write about cults, right? Like, I've got an aunt who believes this. What should I do, dear Abby? Right? I mean, I, I mean, I just saw one of these just the other day, and 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 that's intriguing to me because obviously, as a that's not an area that I would have any under like expertise in in terms of of counseling an individual person. Um, but I do think that we're seeing a lot more of that because it sounds like that people are very concerned about having to interface interpersonally with other people. Historically speaking, though, I mean, the track record, I could be honest with you, is, is that often these things die out because they're discredited. Mm -hmm. right? Like, And the discredited is not in the realm of like public argument where we have proved that you're wrong. Often they do it to themselves, right? I mean, the, the excesses of anti-communism or the, even the excesses of anti-masonry burn themselves out at some point and become exposed for what they are. I'm not sure that's a very comforting solution because that kind of <laughs> suggests we're going to be- Write it out. Well, right, exactly. Out. But but if you're asking that to me, when you talk about bigger social movements is, is what's going on there. So I promised you both a couple of minutes to wrap up and we're kind of at that point now. So I, I do want to give you at least two minutes to make your closing comments about this and, you know, try to think again about how we get past this and what we can do and even as individuals or as a government to help people through these dislocations. Um, so Joanne, to you first, take a, a couple minutes. So I think on that point, and I'll, and I'll talk a little bit at the interpersonal level and maybe sort of at the government level as, as well. I think we, we know that 
trying to debunk conspiracy theories at a factual level and teaching people teaching people about media literacy is great. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't shouldn't do that, but these are self-sealing. And so um, how do we get pet? And so the the arguments, the logical sort of argumentation doesn't work. I think if we back up and remi- re- remind ourselves that the driving force behind these beliefs is more motivational than it is not ability, ability or knowledge or, 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 and so, and remind ourselves that the, that the dislocations are disconcerting, anxiety producing, um, whether, whether you think that they should be or not, whether you think that threats to the social hierarchy should be anxiety producing to white men who have been at the top of the hierarchy or not, um, that dislocation in general is disconcerting. And if we think about approaching this with a more empathetic, you know, not talking about the conspiracy theory, yep, um, but talking about why you're feeling so stressed out. Yep. Jamie, wrap up. Well, I, I think the one thing I'd like to, for folks who are listening to impress upon folks is, is that it's not so simple as just saying, oh, that's a mere conspiracy theory, or all of those people who believe in conspiracy theories, there's something wrong with them, right? Aside from what we mean by belief, you know, conspiracy theories and conspiratorial explanations are kind of a dark, necessary side of our reasonable, deliberative society that we envision we're part of. And it's actually quite human to want to tell stories where human agents control events, right? It's, it's somehow more comforting than the idea of broader systems theory so that it's easy to find a reason to attribute something bad happening. And that's part of the appeal. And so rather than saying like, oh, how, how dumb, you know, you they, these stupid people over here who believe in these conspiracy theories, acknowledge the fact that in fact, that in reality, sometimes we may also hold conspiratorial beliefs. We just don't think of them as conspiracy theories because we think that they're true, right? And so as a result, um, it's kind of a more complicated interrogation of our own belief systems to ask, well, how often do I overly attribute events to one person behind the scenes, the fat cat smoking cigars on the monopoly, like from Monopoly or something like that, versus and this goes back to the education question, thinking more critically about institutional and structural and historical factors that promote, you know, racism and, and sexism, among other things. So thank um, you. That, that, that's what we do. Yeah, thank you both so much. We are, alas, now out of time. We could have done another hour on this topic. It was really interesting. <laughs> thank, thank you to our guests this afternoon, Jamie McGowan, the James Russell Wiggins Chair in Government and Polity at College of the Atlantic, and Joanne Miller, Associate Professor of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Delaware. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Our website is lwvme.org for more information on this topic or to learn about other shows in our series. You can subscribe to our podcast at lwvme.org or email us at downeast at lwvme.org. Thank you both so much for joining the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks.